tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. That's our very high intention that as we engage with Dr. Taylor's work here, this place will become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. My name is Mike Young, and I'm so very excited for the launching of this podcast project. I can't wait for you to hear this first episode and this first sermon from Dr. Taylor. However, before we jump into it, I wanted to give you a little background on how this came to be, as well as a brief word of what I hope it to become. I currently serve as an executive director of a nonprofit here in the county that I live in. I often kind of jokingly introduce myself in this new gig as a recovering Baptist preacher. <laughs> I've been in detox from that vocation for several years now. And it always gets a little bit of a laugh because it's knowing laughter. I've often joked that I grew up in a little Baptist church located just to the left of snake handling. I had a wonderful spiritual upbringing in my family, but the church of my youth was one built on harsh exclusion and unambiguous division between those who were in and those who were out. Frankly, grace was a word that we sung about in the great hymn, but upon closer look, it was absent from much of what was taught and preached. Love was said to be infinite, but it felt conditional. God didn't seem to love me as much as God loved my ascent to a very specific and narrow group of beliefs. Outside of that, I mean eternal damnation and literal conscious hell. However, there are two people outside of my parents whom I credit with introducing me to an understanding of God that didn't merely include grace and love, but was in fact built on those as a firm foundation. And these people were my campus minister at LSU, whose name was Frank Horton, and Dr. Larry Taylor, my pastor during my first years as a vocational minister at Louisiana College. Frank modeled this newly discovered love and grace, and in so doing, created a space in which real life of a young boy away at college could experience the love and grace of the Creator in the context of community. I'd submit that it was my first encounter with a thin place. Because of that experience, I felt called to go do the same. So I followed the only path that I knew at the time, and I went off to seminary. My very first gig after graduating from seminary was at Louisiana College as the Baptist Student Union Director. My boss at the time didn't want to pressure me and Susie into joining his church, but he did give me a cassette tape of a sermon by his pastor. It was Dr. Larry Taylor. The text was... Matthew chapter 1. I skeptically inserted the tape into my cassette player, anticipating some boring attempt to make a chapter of begats into a few minutes of preacher speak. 
I was transfixed. That's not hyperbole. I listened to the entire sermon, and then I listened to it again. And I knew that this was going to be my church, and this was my pastor speaking. And it began about a decade run or so of me eagerly anticipating Sunday mornings and what I was going to hear from Larry Taylor's pulpit. And here again, there's another thin place. The Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams says that she often thinks about love as space. She says that love is developing our own capacity for spaciousness within ourselves to allow others to be as they are. In the thin places that I've talked about to this point, I discovered that type of space. Space to be loved just as I was, and space to love others just as they are. And doesn't that sound like something we need right now? I posted on social media that I had some of these cassettes of sermons from Larry Taylor and the response was immediate. People wanted to hear them again. And so I've began digitizing them and uploading them onto my computer and now we're going to broadcast them here in this space. The first sermon we're going to hear in this podcast will be The Thin Place. It was actually preached at the King's Cross Church in Tullahoma, Tennessee, and not at Emmanuel. We were in an interim period between pastors, and the doctors Taylor, Larry and Linda, were both retired and living in Murfreesboro, not far from here. And we were blessed to have them come and speak to us uh, two Sundays in a row. I'm re-listening to this sermon today, the day following the first presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And it was timely for me to listen to this again, because I really needed a thin place today. Dr. Larry Taylor, The Thin Place. All right, we're together. Thank you. Thank you, musicians. Thank you, Lamar. And thanks to each of you for the way you've received Linda and me the last couple of Sundays. You've made us feel right at home in your fellowship, and you are a warm and receiving congregation. And it's a privilege to have been with you these two Sundays. And what beautiful days they've been. I believe in heaven it will always be October. Our scripture lesson today is from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. It's necessary to read a number of verses in order to get the sweep of what is one of the most beautiful narratives in all of scripture. John chapter 4. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you plan to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his cattle? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So the woman left her water jar and went back into the city and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the city, and they were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony, and many more believed because of his word. They said, It's no longer because of your words that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man is the Savior of the world. To begin with, the place itself was auspicious. It was favorable. It was the right place for something important to happen. It always had been that kind of place. 
The geography of this valley was narrow and it formed a natural plain. On either side there were mountains. On the north, Mount Ebal, and to the south, Mount Gerizim, a sacred mountain. Here in this valley, Jacob's well had been situated since ancient times. It proved to be an oasis, providing weary travelers refreshing water as they came to the town. This place had all the ingredients for something important to happen. But not only geography, history also had made its contribution to the mystique of this valley with its deep well of clear water. Among the patriarchs, wells had been important places. Life was sustained by them in an arid land. At the sites of wells, young men and maidens had met and the course of history was changed. Near this well, Jacob himself had met his beloved Rachel and he loved her from the first moment. It's just hard to imagine a, a more historic place for a meeting to happen. Jacob's well was a landmark, both on the terrain and on the souls of people. As such, it was a holy place. It fed the soul and it watered the spirit. Some spaces are just like that. Gretel Ehrlich says, space has a spiritual equivalent and it can heal what is divided and burdensome in us. In the Celtic tradition, they speak of thin places. That is those rare places where the membrane between heaven and earth is very thin. Have you ever been to a thin place? The holy place is part of the landscape of the sacred. It's a spiritual twilight zone where human spirit and holy spirit touch and transform. As such, the holy place always chooses us. We do not choose it. It becomes holy without any help from us. It is a place apart from other places. For Moses, it was a burning bush. For Jacob, a rocky hillside named Bethel. For Elijah, it was a dark and lonely cave. And for this woman, whose name we don't even know, the holy place on this day proved to be Jacob's well. She already knew the place intimately because she came there every day to draw water. It gave her an excuse to leave the village where she lived, to get away from glaring eyes and vicious rumor. Once each day at noon, when others were busy preparing food, this woman came all alone to the well in the valley. This place was already charged with possibilities. It promised to become a thin place. The time of her arrival at the well was fortuitous. It was fortunate. If the place was right, so also was the time. It was noon, 
high noon, we might say. And so there's a sense of drama that's set. In the full light of day, this lone woman comes to Jacob's well to draw water. She had carefully chosen the time because she knew no one else would be at the well at this hour. The other women in the village came early in the morning or late in the afternoon to draw their water, but no one was ever at the well at high noon until today. And there he sat, leaning against the edge of the well. He was motionless, slumped from weariness, all alone, just like her. The time was fortuitous. It was a moment when eternity can be received into time. It was the eternal now of conversion in a place apart and a time out of time. At high noon at the village well, two strangers are about to meet. Both of them are marginal to society, out of the mainstream. Each one is betwixt and between, and chance or fate or God has brought them both together at this place, at this moment. It's a thin place where heaven and earth brush one another briefly. Sacred space and holy time are about to converge. All afternoon, my family and I had explored the small villages of the Cotswold Hills in western England. Little villages, maybe a half dozen houses and always a church. Some of them were ancient Saxon churches, more than a thousand years old. I climbed up into great old stone pulpits where monks' feet had stood for centuries. Later that evening, I commented to a geography teacher that it's almost beyond an American's mind to comprehend a building that's more than a thousand years old. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, in your country, you understand space. In our country, we understand time. Both the time and the place are favorable for this meeting at the village well. But the two persons themselves are unlikely. There's no promise of fruitful conversation between these two people. The barriers are too great and too many. The walls between them are strong, reinforced by centuries of suspicion and prejudice and custom. He a man, she a woman. Strangers of different gender didn't speak in public places. She a Samaritan, he a Jew why Jews were contemptuous of Samaritan half-breeds. For her, Mount Gerizim nearby was the holy place of worship. For him, Jerusalem was the holy city. Unspoken barriers formed an icy wall between them, social, sexual, and religious. And so the woman went about her task quietly, 
drawing her water as she always did, wordless in this silent place. She was armed only with her water pot in this vulnerable moment, but she was walled off by barriers ancient and unspoken from this stranger who sat on the edge of the well quietly and watched her draw the water. All sounds originate out of silence. Words come from empty space and empty time. And so Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. They were words that shatter silence. The walls come tumbling down. Spirit is reaching out to spirit over all kinds of barriers and obstacles. It was a request that challenged centuries of custom. Theologian Walter Wink says, In every single encounter with women in the four Gospels, Jesus violated the mores of his time. He broke the silence of the ages with a warm and human request. Give me a drink. Who can possibly refuse to give a drink of water? Everyone is thirsty. Our enemy is thirsty. The person we don't know is thirsty the homeless person in the street, the one whose morality is suspect, the well-to-do, the down-and-out, the marginalized, the ignored. The next great scarcity in our world may well not be oil but water. Everybody's thirsty. Give me a drink. Now, the conversation that ensued was transforming. It was magical. Jesus' request for water broke down the wall, and now at least they could talk. It is in dialogue that we create one another. Words give birth to new possibilities. And what a dialogue it was. His request for water opened the floodgates of conversation. How is it, she asked, that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Everybody knows the Jews and the Samaritans have no dealings. That's true, of course. The two groups are locked in lonely cells of silence until the right time and the right place and the right need bring them together. Because sooner or later, everybody has to go to the well. Everyone is thirsty. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If only we knew the gift of God, we would ask. And God would give because we are needy and need to ask. Because God is gracious and wants to give living water 
for our burning thirst. But first, we have a word problem. He wants water, and she needs water, but they're using the same word for different things, and he's qualified his use with yet another term, living, living water. And whatever else that connoted in her mind, it was infinitely better than anything she had ever carried back in her water pot from the well. Now, when you think about it, any time two people connect with words, a miracle occurs. Sometimes we think we're communicating and we aren't. Language itself is a miracle that two people should find one another at the right place at the right time is unlikely enough, but that their words should connect in all the vast desert of mind and meaning. Now, there's a real miracle. But unfortunately, for the moment, she is only thinking literally. The welfare of her soul isn't yet a very high priority with her. And so she says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. Perhaps you haven't noticed, but the well is deep. And she's right again. It's a long way down to where the water is. We don't get there easily. The well is too deep. And if we can only think of a literal well with literal water and a literal rope and bucket, we may never get there at all. Because literalism has a way of shutting down further thinking. Some things are simply too important to literalize them. To literalize may be to trivialize. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you propose to get this living water? Now, unless something else happens here, this conversation is doomed. They're going nowhere. They have a word problem. As yet, they aren't in sync. She speaks of H2O, and he speaks of living water. She speaks of water with a little W. He speaks of water with a capital W. It's a perfect time and a perfect place for the miracle of metaphor to happen. Jesus wants to know whether this woman has any poetry in her. Can she make the quantum leap from here to there? And so Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. And then he pauses and waits to see how she will respond. Will she be able to find her way from this literal well to the sacred well? This may be a thin place where the membrane between heaven and earth is very slim indeed, but there are no guarantees that she'll be able to cross it. And now, 
it begins to dawn on this woman. She has stumbled over a metaphor. She begins to perceive that she is in a different sort of time and place. Her own sense of poetry is awakened. Now she knows she's not in Kansas anymore. This man isn't speaking of water that comes from wells like Jacob's. In the thin place, Holy Spirit and human spirit mesh so that water can become a whole lot more than just H2O. And so metaphor begins its magic. Here in the Gospel of John, metaphor transforms over and over again. In chapter 2, it transforms water into wine. In chapter 3, it transforms birth into new birth. In chapter 6, it transforms bread into the bread of life. And here in chapter 4, it transforms H2O into living water. And so at last, the woman begins to hear. He's caught her ear, and now she's interested. She wants what he promises. Sir, she says, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. The miracle began when Jesus asked her for a drink. You see, Jesus made the first move. You know, Jesus always makes the first move. When I was a child in Sunday school, the first song I can remember learning was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But the second song I learned was this, Oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. Jesus always makes the first move. And so the woman asks him for the water that lives. The whole level of conversation's been transformed. A woman from the margins of society is being drawn to that vital center where she's beginning to discover a fountain of living water that comes from a sacred well. And then abruptly Jesus says to her, Go fetch your husband because the well has to be shared. This water, this living water is not for hoarding. It belongs to everybody. We can't simply camp at the well and enjoy long drinks of living water ourselves and forget about the nearby village where people are dry and waiting and thirsty. Why, the cry goes up everywhere for water. Everyone's thirsty. Can't you hear their voices? They say, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Go, he says, fetch your husband. She's had her first taste of living water and the mere prospect of another drink prompts her confession. I have no husband. But Jesus knows. Jesus already knows. She's had five husbands and now she was living with a lover 
Now the Jews were allowed as many as three divorces, pretty generous considering. But she's had five husbands. She's way beyond the law. The law has been stretched to its limits. This woman's on the very edge, the margin of society where only grace dares to reach. And when Jesus already seems to know her story, she perceives that he's a prophet. He's advanced in her eyes from a mere stranger now to a prophet. Now, anytime you're trapped in a conversation, you either retreat or evade. In the midst of a political campaign, it's a good time to rediscover that. <laughs> this seems to be a perfect occasion to start an argument about religion. And so she does. She raises a question about the appropriate place to worship. Your church or my church? But Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place, Jacob's well. Do you have a Jacob's well anywhere in your life? And now for the first time another word begins to creep into the conversation. The woman says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll show us all things. And as if it were too obvious even to explain, Jesus replies simply and profoundly, I who speaks to you am he. And suddenly, this woman, who's been trapped in a non-fulfilling life, moving through each day's rituals, such as drawing water, in a kind of repetition compulsion, runs back to the little town where she's lost so much and been marginalized by scandal. This little gossipy town must have represented endless loss for this woman. Here perhaps she'd lost her husbands, lost her reputation, lost her friends, lost her innocence. And we should note that now this woman has just lost something else. She completely forgets about her water pot. Always before, she'd taken something home with her from the well in her water pot, but she leaves her water jar behind. It's made countless trips with her from the village to the well and back again, but all of a sudden, it isn't necessary. In town, the woman tells her fellow villagers that she's just met a man who seems to know her through and through and still accepts her still and all. And she asks, can this be the Christ? Well, who else? And so, the whole city poured out 
toward Jacob's well. It's high noon, don't you see? And the dramas become intense. And we read that many people believed in Jesus because of the testimony of this woman. Did you catch that? In Jesus' world, the testimony of a woman was usually considered worthless. The villagers persuaded Jesus to remain with them for a couple of more days, and many of them sat around listening to him and believed in him. They told the woman, it's no longer just because of your words that we believe in this man, for now we've heard from our, for ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's a long faith journey from recognizing Jesus merely as a Jew to addressing him as sir, to calling him a prophet, to Messiah, and now to Savior of the world. But that's the journey we've made with this woman. She's been to a thin place where things material encounter things spiritual and get transformed by metaphor. So what's the Jacob's well in your life? What are you making of your moment in this thin place? There's something to be lost but something gained in this place. Because in a world where everyone is thirsty, this woman has left her water pot behind. But she took home the well. And so can we. I really hope you've all enjoyed this first edition of A Thin Place podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor as much as I've enjoyed putting it together. I'm really looking forward to sharing the rest of these sermons with all of you. If you have any suggestions or comments, ideas, uh, please send them to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. It's available to stream on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, all the major platforms. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice and share it on your social media platforms. I'd love for more people to discover the treasures of these sermons. And special thanks, obviously, to Larry and Linda Taylor for allowing me to share these sermons in this way. I'm looking forward to being with all of you next time on A Thin Place with Dr. Larry Taylor.